Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we speak with Professor Joseph Ellis. He and Clay Jenkinson discuss the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was that European intellectual and social movement between about 1680 and 1840 or 50 that believed in rationality, science, in skepticism, in the rights of man, in the possibility that humans could govern themselves. And the question we asked today was, was that true? Is that the right model for humanity? And how well are we holding up those values today? And Clay, you and Joe also share some of your ideas about America, its future, and truth. Joseph Ellis says that the very basis of the Enlightenment was commitment to truth and truth-seeking. How do you go forward when there's been an erosion of that basic Enlightenment value? Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I wanted to speak to you today about the Enlightenment. Americans often hear about the Enlightenment in connection with the American Revolution, and you, sir, could you explain to us what that meant and perhaps who some of the key figures of the Enlightenment were? Certainly. The Enlightenment is an intellectual and political and social movement that began in Europe around 1680 and continued to, I suppose, 1820 or 1830, uh, both um, in Europe and in the United States. And it was uh, it, it was a kind of break with the past. It, it emphasized reason, skepticism, science, good sense, reform, the cataloging of nature, uh, the attempt to uh, use Newton's law of gravitation, the idea that there's an underlying law that governs motion, and to see if we could, by way of analogy, focus that law on other things like education and agriculture and even government. And so I can tell you that the United States was born in the Enlightenment. In fact, we may be the Enlightenment's greatest single achievement. And certainly our Constitution was a quintessential Enlightenment document, believing that humans are up to the challenge of governing themselves but that they need to have a, a filtering system so that the will of the people finds expression in law in a careful, modulated, uh, and majoritarian way. Well, I understand, sir, that uh, the theories of Newton may have been something very new for you, but uh, the idea of expanding humans' uh, ability to govern themselves, how did that come about? Well, we knew from ancient works, going all the way back to ancient Greece, that people come into a social compact, that they form a government, they form a polity in order to adjust their social relations, to decide how to um, move property from one generation to the next, how to settle disputes between neighbors, how to have a foreign policy, how to make coinage and determine what is the value of each service and each commodity and so on. Every society, no matter how primitive, forms a kind of social compact. But the Enlightenment was sort of re-understanding this, and it was graduating out of a period of superstition 
and absolutism and monarchy and aristocracy. In other words, uh, King James I in England said that he was divinely protected, that God himself had chosen him to be his viceroy on earth. No figure of the Enlightenment would believe that. Uh, the will of the people, the sovereign, the people, create their own will, and they express it through legislative bodies. But the idea that God would choose person X or person Y to be his viceroy on earth is not only irrational, but in a certain sense, it's insane. And so we were repudiating all of these habits and traditions and uh, notions from the past, these sort of sacred ideas, and saying, let's look at this through the, the eye of reason. Let's make reason our only oracle. And when you do that, of course, you realize that if God exists, he certainly doesn't choose the king of England or the king of Denmark or France, that these are arbitrary social concepts that have burbled up over time, and we've come to believe some of them because we're, we've been told by our priests and our aristocrats and our kings that this is the truth. But the minute you look at it uh, through a sober lens, uh, you realize that humans are better than that. Well, finally, Mr. Jefferson, Americans today pretty much take it for granted that humans should govern themselves. Is this a mistake, or are you pleased with that, sir? I do certainly uh, fundamentally believe that humans can govern themselves. I absolutely believe in the idea of self-government. It's rational. It's founded in nature, whereas kingship certainly is not. And we were willing in my time to repudiate the doctrines of the Bible carefully, but skeptically, and to stand up for ourselves. We were humanists, sir. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome. citizens and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm your host David Swenson joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson and both of us are so pleased to welcome back Joseph Ellis. Joe, it's been too long since we've talked and you know I thought about you just recently. I spent a weekend putting in my small garden and often when I do that I will put my earbuds in and maybe listen to some music or the news or a book on tape. And I thought, you know, we're going to be talking to Joe pretty soon. So I dialed up my audiobook version of Founding Brothers and listened to, oh, I don't know, two or three chapters as I planted my onions. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, that is just such a brilliant piece of work. And it reminded me of an occasion years ago when Clay took me to New York to interview Dan Rather uh, about Eric Severide. And at one point, Dan Rather told his story about Eric Severide saying, have you read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, Schreier's book? And Dan Rather answered, yes, I have. And Eric Severide looked up at him and said, read it again. And that's, <laughs> that's kind of how I felt about Founding Brothers. So I'm gonna start with a compliment. 
people should read that book. It's just brilliant, and thank you for it. Well, and Jefferson is very much in it. It's a, it's a wonderful. I mean, for me, it's a trust fund because I've sent three kids to college, partly on the royalties from that book. So thank you for the plug. Um, well, it's but it's wanna... but it, it's such a good, timely book to read now because you get into how. You know, the, the founders were kind of saved by political parties, which was a, mm. a, a whole new thought to me. But, you know, mm. I've always gone along with, well, there weren't going to be political parties. But you you draw this this scenario where it kind of saved them. And, and plus the fact that these men were on such different sides about many issues, but they found consensus and realized they had well, to. Or that, yeah, the argument among them was the founding. It wasn't a set of truths. It was an argument about what the truths meant. And uh, and in some sense, the, you talk about the founders as if they're a single unit. If, if you believe in diversity, and not just racial diversity, but also genuine ideological and intellectual diversity, the founders represent that, that there's, there's checks and balance inside the temperaments of the founding generation. Um, if you leave it just to Hamilton, we're going to end up a autocracy. And if you leave it just to Jefferson, now Clay will disagree with this perhaps, uh, we might very well end up in anarchy. And um, and their interaction, uh, and Adams is somewhere in between there. But um, at any rate, thank you for that. And, um, and we're doing this on Memorial Day. I think we can say that. And um, and I think we want to use the occasion to remember as much as we can about the American past and the Jefferson era as we possibly can to give the same kind of insights to this audience that uh, you say the Founding Brothers provide. Let me join David Swenson in thanking you for returning to the Jefferson. I've been hiding out up in Vermont until recently, and I'm We're back down in uh, the People's Republic of Amherst now. And... Um, I'm, I've got a new license plate. It's a Vermont license plate, so I'm about to become a Vermonter. Oh my! So our theme today is going to be the Enlightenment, but you know this really gets us started, David and Joe, because you know I th here's what I think the founding was about. You know, Joe says it's about this discussion, this argument about the meaning of the revolution, or or you might put it another way, the meaning of a republic. And so they yes. most of them agreed that we want a republic. They weren't altogether certain of what that exactly meant. But we know some things about it. They meant that the people were sovereign and that the people were going to generate the social compact and then ratify it state by state and so on. But here's the big argument. Here's the discussion that they were having. If the people are sovereign, do we just listen to their will as, to the extent that we can discern it and enact that into law? Or do we filter and distill their will by way of a number of different distilling mechanisms, some of which check and balance each other. And and Adams was always for checks and balances, Mr. Jefferson, checks and balances. And Jefferson agreed to a certain degree, but he was more naive, let's say, or more optimistic. He had greater faith in the, in the wisdom of the common man. He did. Right. To govern themselves, right? The word republic is the key. And we need to recognize that the American Revolution was, in fact, a genuine intellectual political revolution. It was to say that power did not flow from God to monarchs and downward to feudal uh, lords. It flowed upward from that mystic thing called the people. It's a reversal of the whole idea of what government represents. Um, 
And in the 18th, late 18th century, the term, the key term was republic, res publica, things of the public. The word democracy, even for Jefferson, he changes about 1816 on this, but up until then, democracy is an epithet. You accuse somebody of being a Democrat because a democracy is a, is a, is a form of government in which um, popular opinion, which is always subject to demagogic manipulation, and is, it often be, takes the form of mob rule, and they're thinking back to Rome and, and uh, Tacitus and Cicero, um, that you don't want to have a democracy. What you want to have is just what you said, Clay, namely public, popular opinion stands, stands, at, stands at the foundation, but then on the foundation is built government, which filters this popular opinion through channels of refinement, like refining crude oil, if you will. Um, and that the, that the commitment is not to the people. The commitment is to the public. The whole rationale for the Senate, which is laughable now that you think of what the Senate's become, is to be, because it's got a six-year term, further removed from elections and therefore more capable of acting in the public interest rather than the popular interest. And so what we want the Senate to do and what we want a president to do and what we want the Supreme Court to do is not be influenced by fads of the moment, but to see the long-term interest of the Republic. Um, and you can disagree about that. But you have to recognize that your highest goal is not to be elected to the Senate, but to act in ways that if, if it causes your your defeat in the next election, that's no problem. Not, it might be a problem for you, but um, but they, the public interest has to take precedence over the popular interest. We're listening to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour with our returning champion, Mr. Joseph Ellis, uh, now of Amherst, Massachusetts, but more often recently from an undisclosed location somewhere in the Green Mountains of Vermont. David Swenson, the semi-permanent guest host of the Jefferson Hour. It's always a joy to have a, a conversation between you and me and the great Joe Ellis. Agreed. I, I listened to you just now, Joe, and you said popular opinion stands at the foundation. And maybe that's the way it was intended. But and I'm looking at this and going, you know, three branches of government, well, not working out so great. You know, we've got a situation in America now where minority rules in the Senate because of the filibuster. The, the Supreme Court has become, as I think you would both agree, very politicized. And we we have gone through presidential changes. Uh, the, the norms and decorum of the office have been thrown out. So I, it's, it's, it's a bit dicey now, isn't it? Well, I mean, if you gathered the founders together, and of course, you know, you can't do that. And trying to bring the founders into the present is like trying to plant cut flowers. Um, and Jefferson himself said, look, don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, what we have done in, at our moment in history is consolidate the wisdom of our moment. Um, but things are going to change. Science is going to change our understanding of, of lots of things. Don't look back to us. And, and Jefferson even said that the Constitution ought to be redone every 20 years. Uh, every generation needed to have its own version of the Constitution, which, of course, would have been chaos. But I think that 
what you're saying is true. And in the present, if you ask me, and of course, I confer with the with founders on a daily basis by reading their letters. So I sort of think they're talking to me. And what they say to me is, first of all, what is this thing called the filibuster? Um, we never had that. We specified three or four occasions in the Constitution where a vote in the Senate had to be a supermajority. Go to war, overthrow a presidential veto, or pass a Supreme Court amendment, um, and also approve all treaties. That's four things. Everything else was supposed to be a strict majority vote. If it's a filibuster or cloture, that is unconstitutional in my judgment. It's a procedural change that has made a constitutional change. And that thing, and that to me means it is unconstitutional. I also think that the, the, whole, the whole way in which elections are run, I mean, most of the first presidents of the United States, including Jefferson, for sure, and Washington at Jefferson, um, uh, John Adams, um, John Quincy Adams, uh, James Monroe, none of them would have run for political office in the current climate. They would regard it as an act of prostitution. So we created a fundamentally different political culture, and the values that, that they created for their moment only translate now in a very, very indirect way. Um, they are a beacon to me in the, in the sense that I really do think um, that our commitment to what we call the public um, has to take sway. And, um, and in this particular interest, for example, in terms of gun control, um, uh, it's pretty clear. Even the majority in this case of 90 percent of the American people, according to polls, want to see limits on military style weapons. And um, but the, the, what, what uh, David said is true. The minority is ruling in, on that issue right now in a way that uh, I think um, just has to change. I don't know whether you'll agree with this or not, but I think the fatal flaw of the founders' vision is something that Jefferson understood, that there is a constitutional element of checks and balances and limitations on the amount of power that any individual or even any entity can have. Those are all the systems built into the Constitution of the United States. But Jefferson also understood that there's a spiritual element to this, that there has to be a belief, there has to be a civic religion. People have to agree to have sort of a set of guardrails of the Constitution that are not necessarily explicitly written into it, but without which it can't function, and that this is a spirit of democracy or a spirit of civic religion. So that, that's my question to you, Dr. Joseph Ellis. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, this will give you time to formulate your Adams-like answer to this. <laughs> We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour with the returning champion, Dr. Joseph Ellis. Not at an undisclosed location, but in Amherst, one of the most liberal places on the planet, talking to us today, planning a move to Vermont, a much more uh, quirky political state. But Joe, before we went to break, I said that Jefferson understood that there is a non-rational, even a spiritual element to a republic that can only work if there is a voluntary commitment to a kind of civic religion about norms, about decency, about mm. graciousness, and so on. And I just know that as a as a sputtering Adamsite, you've got an, a, an answer to that. Well, I think that the, the description that you provide, a kind of larger civic sense, a sense of the whole that people are asked to internalize, um, that would be shared among other founders, Jefferson, as well as Adams, as well as um, Washington, as well as Franklin, they all brought that sense of, of an overarching interest of the collective with them. Uh, where Jefferson is a kind of odd man out in this group, Jefferson believed in something called self-government. But what self-government meant to him wasn't traditional libertarian version now of self-government. Self-government meant that individual Americans would govern themselves. They would internalize a sense of a whole. That, for example, you in today's context, you wouldn't need to have the government mandate masks. They would simply do it because they knew it was in the best interest of the community, that, that, that their decision had impact on other people, and that that was a part of their self-government. He got this idea from a prominent figure in the Scottish Enlightenment, Francis Hutchinson. And Hutchinson had this idea called the moral sense, that every human being comes into the world bearing this moral sense. It's a kind of a version of the soul, but it's different. And if you believe in that, then you don't need government to impose itself to force you to do the right thing. Here's where Adams, Hamilton, Washington all thought Jefferson was a utopian because they thought, based on their understanding of human nature, that that expectation that he was imposing on individuals didn't fit their experience. Right, but the Enlightenment had a number of different arms, a number of different nations, a number of different styles. But on the whole, if you had to boil the Enlightenment down to a few concepts. One of them was optimism about the human project. And so Jefferson may be a utopian in that way, but he's in line with the great Enlightenment figures in thinking, we don't need reference to Christ. We probably don't need reference to God. If we do have reference to God, it's really of a physicist, a kind of deistic God, that humans are up to it, and that we need to turn them loose because they have been beaten down by history and beaten down by the institutions of the old world And so we don't know what humans are capable of because they've never been given a real chance at it. Isn't isn't that the sense of it? I don't disagree with your description of Jefferson's view of what the Enlightenment means. The the Enlightenment is such a broad term. I think the term was coined by um, Immanuel Kant in 1796, but it's a mid-18th century intellectual movement that sweeps across most of France, England, and Scotland. There's a branch of it in Germany, too, obviously. And there are varied inversions. The Scottish Enlightenment, by the way, is 
much more interest, and that's the reason Adams likes the Scottish Enlightenment better, is interested in human emotion and the rule that emotions govern, not reason governs. I think Jefferson is much more in the French Enlightenment, Voltaire, Diderot. Diderot believed, and he put it quite colorfully, he said that the last king should be strangled with the entrails of the last priest. And that once you do that, once you leave the dark ages, once you leave the cave of medieval Europe and enter into the bright sunlight of the new modern enlightened world, human beings will start to behave differently and they will enjoy the kind of new freedom that they've got and they will use it responsibly. So there is this kind of real optimism in Jefferson. And in some ways, as his life proceeds and he watches things happen, especially on the slavery issue. From Jefferson's point of view, slavery should have been ended because it was simply wrong. He thinks it's going to die a natural death because it will simply be incompatible with the values of a republic. And when that doesn't happen, he's really disappointed. It didn't play the way I sort of thought it was supposed to play. You might remember that the word utopian is from the Greek meaning. Well, it means great place, but it can also mean no place. It means nowhere. That's what it means. I took four years of Greek. It means nowhere. There is this vision inside the founding in which people are optimistic about human nature on the one side and much more pessimistic. Jefferson's very much on the optimistic side. Again, you've got this diversity that I think is one of the sources of the founding strength. But in terms of our own values now, I mean, here's a question for you, Clay. When do you think that the optimistic view of human nature and the core values of the French Enlightenment die a natural death? Great question. Of course, it's almost like a parlor game. Here are a couple of them. The Reign of Terror was certainly a blow to that. A lot of the Americans who had been initially sort of um, favorable towards the French Revolution were done right then. But now fast forward to the Civil War, 700,000 Americans killing each other the worst possible thing that can happen to a nation, or flash forward to the Great War, World War I, which shattered all European ideas about peace and forbearance and being able to work things out in a non-military way. And then if you just want a couple of more, the Holocaust, of course, and then the, the, the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it goes on and on and on, my friend. Adams may turn out to have been an optimist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, instead of thinking of a single moment when the window closes, maybe the better way to think of it is when the nails go in the coffin. And um, that I would, you know, I think I tend to agree with all the ones you cited, but I think that Darwin, 1859, evolution, is a fatal blow because it undermines the entire assumptions of Christianity up to that time had about, about life. If I might, historical context about what we now term it as, as title, the Enlightenment, you know, was, was this like some rule set that people of Jefferson's age used consciously, or, or is it just our own historical perspective on it? I think it's it's a little bit of both, but the way I put it is a lot of them were reading the same books. That It was a body of knowledge that was being generated by prominent thinkers of the moment in, the, in these European countries. Um, that you when you were if you went to if you went to William and Mary, for example, you read uh, 
uh, Hutchison. That's where he read Hutchison. If you went to Harvard, um, you know, you read Adam Smith, um, you read David Hume, um, but you also read Tacitus and Cicero and Thucydides, who were also, they're not, but those are historical figures who talk in terms of the same large categories of, of human knowledge. Um, so there is a kind of educational foundation here. Um, the, the difference between and the people in Europe who are called philosophes, the great leaders of the Enlightenment, the ones mentioned, Diderot, uh, et cetera, uh, none of those people exercised political power. Those people were not statesmen. They were self-described intellectuals. Their, 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 uh, their great location was the coffee house and the salon. Um, what you've got in the United States is a group of people who are philosophes too. Um, and Jefferson is certainly one of them. So is Adams, so, so is Franklin, not Washington. Washington doesn't fit in here. Um, but that they actually are going to occupy power. They are going to exercise authority in government. And that makes it a quite different situation in the United States. Yeah, so Henry Steele Cominger, a brilliant historian of the mid-20th century, wrote a book called Empire of Reason. And in that book, Joe, he's speaking your language, or perhaps you're indebted to him, but his view was Europe worked the ideas of the Enlightenment, but America installed them in an experimental republic. America becomes the laboratory to experiment with the values that are created in Europe. And actually, Washington says this and perhaps the most eloquent thing he ever wrote in 1780 or 81 it's a last letter to uh, the uh, last what do you call it uh open letter to all the state governments and he said that we have come into the existence in a very fortuitous moment when how to organize society and how to form government has reached a level of understanding that never existed before and we have the opportunity to put that into into place and to put it to work in a way that no other nation before um, ever had. We've got this incredible trust fund. The other trust fund is the Western land, by the way, where it happened to be occupied at the time by oh, at south or east of the Mississippi, about 200,000 Native Americans. Um, but this notion that the United States happens to be coming into existence at a moment when our understanding of society, of human nature, is reaching a crescendo that never never existed before. And some people go too far with that idea, and, and, and I think Jefferson himself is the one that does, but that um, uh, I think we're now unwilling to accept. Uh, I want to turn the conversation, if we may, uh, to where we are now. So I, what we've established is that the, that the Enlightenment existed. And your, your question was, did it really call itself the Enlightenment? Or you know, what was their self-consciousness about this? Yes and no, a little bit, but not much. This is a, a term we now sort of apply in retrospect to this period between 1680 and 1850 or somewhere in there. But that's, uh, that's a pretty arbitrary term like Renaissance or like Middle Ages or like Dark Ages. These are convenient for historians, but the more you look at them, the more they tend to break down. But assuming there's something we can call the Enlightenment, and we've characterized it as the empowerment of human reason and the belief that humans can govern themselves and that they can create social compacts that will do that in an orderly, 
and protective way, and that the rights of man, the rights of humanity were central to this whole project. So assuming that's true, you know, we've just lived through this moment, Joe, in which the guardrails held, but not by much, and the civic religion, that kind of spiritual dimension to this thing, which is meant to keep the guardrails holding, was almost not in existence at this time. So the guardrails hold, thanks to the wisdom of the founding fathers, but but without that extra element of, of, of civic commitment to the project, it gets pretty dicey at times. We're, we're of course, living with this, so my credentials as a historian are irrelevant almost because it's right. It's not, there's no perspective to have on it. We don't know how it's going to play out. Um, I do think that one of the things that struck me as a teacher of American history over the last 45 years or so um, is that the rising generation has been, um, it's heavily indebted to the internet and for, and the computer and, that it's it's cognitively less capable of reading as much of this but in addition that there are now a notion there are multiple definitions of truth and so i get my truth from that app and you get your truth from that app and that they're all equal truths um and if there is some core belief in the enlightenment that i'd like us to retain and uh, that I think is being lost is the notion that, that there is a truth that we can argue. And uh, but you know, uh, somebody did win the election in the year 220, and somebody did win the Super Bowl in that same year, and somebody did win the Battle of Yorktown. Um, those are not interpretive questions; those are factual questions. And that there is a there is a a mist over America in which there's no longer a sense that we have to accept the notion that there's a single idea of truth. And, um, and I don't know how you deal with that. Clay, I would really like to hear your response to that. I I think about that often, what Joe just said, you know, it, uh, you get your truth from one app or another app and, and, and the fact that there are multiple truths, you know, the optimistic Jeffersonian in me wants to say, well, this is a mark of us as a, a society uh, getting better and, and struggling to the next level of understanding. H- how do you take that? Well, the, it's a complicated question. Let me make a couple of runs at it. Certainly there are truths that uh, one team wins the Super Bowl and not another team, that the rocket either lands on Mars or it misses Mars by a hundred thousand kilometers. There are there are ascertainable truths that the sun rises at a certain time over Vermont and at another time over North Dakota and so on. And I think almost everybody agrees with that level of truth. But when you get into the world of sort of how we look at each other, how we interact with each other, how we engage in our politics, it gets a lot more complicated. So in my view, in the election of 2020, the Democrat candidate won and the Republican candidate lost. I think that is an ascertainable truth. However, there are just enough uh, gray areas of uh, mail-in ballots and some states without legislative action changing the number of ballots that can come in and how many days after the date and so on. There are just a number of 
what I would call small irregularities, which provide a little place to wedge in skepticism and doubt. Some of that doubt could be genuine. Most of that doubt, in my opinion, is manufactured and that the people who say, well, the election was stolen, in their heart of hearts or in their mind of minds don't really believe that, but it's convenient and they use that. But if you want to fix that system, what you need to do is to have a uniform election code for the country to specify what is an irregularity and what isn't, and to make sure that that's enforced rigorously so that in the future no one can say, well, because there was a change in the counting system in a, the days before the election, that discredits everything. And so okay, that's not going to... Let me get in here with two historical observations directly related to what you're saying, Clay. And I'll be brief because I know our time is short. One is if you somehow brought the founders back, and I know you can't do that, but uh, as I say, I talk to them every day. One thing they would agree on, they'd be stunned that we still have the Electoral College. None of them believed in the Electoral College. When they left Philadelphia, they said, oh, God, what a what an albatross. And they knew, it, 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 they, they presumed it would be gone. Um, and uh, and it should be gone. It should have been gone 100 years ago. In fact, it was on. The, it was almost a constitutional amendment back to the same time we did away with, uh, where we adopted direct election of the senators. Second, that the principle of elections accepting defeat was established by the election of Jefferson in 1800 because um, it was the first occasion when a member of the opposition side, they didn't say parties yet, the opposition side won a, an election and replaced a person from the other party side. Adams was replaced by Jefferson. There were some shenanigans in that election, too, that you could have pointed to in New York, where Burr probably bought the New York legislature and the electoral votes that actually turned the election to Jefferson. But Adams never even thought about uh, a disagreeing. Um, later on, by the way, Nixon could have done the same thing in the election in 1960. There were all kinds of shenanigans in, in Chicago and in Illinois. But the, the principle that was created that you accept the verdict of the election is first established in 1800 with the election of Thomas Jefferson. Gentlemen, we need to take a short break. I know both of you have much more to say about this, and I'm anxious to hear it. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, a discussion with Clay Jenkinson and Professor Joseph Ellis about the Enlightenment. I'm afraid that I've sort of steered us here and there and away from it at times, and I'm going to do it again before the two of you get back into it. And that, I, I just need to have uh, a couple of minutes to talk about recent documentaries. The Benjamin Franklin, Ken Burns one, I I actually called Clay at the end of that and congratulated him for uh, all, all of his contributions. And I should have called you too, Joe, because you were great in that. And and I enjoyed the both of you very much. And now, as you said, we are recording this on Memorial Day. It sort of worked out for both of your schedules. And tonight uh, there is a Theodore Roosevelt uh, documentary on the History Channel. And my understanding is, Clay, you were a major contributor to that. Uh, yes, I guess that's true. I got a call from uh, Beth Lasky, who is one of the producers last week, and she said, brace yourself. You are really, really big in this series. And they were very complimentary. And so I'll be watching. It's two nights. History Channel, Doris Kearns Goodwin, I'm sure she's in it, but she's also uh, the producer of it. But, you know, before that, uh, the Ken Burns film on Benjamin Franklin, I'll tell you, it was, it was two nights, four hours, and I watched the first night, and I was in it uh, a bunch of times, and I barely saw the great Joe Ellis. And I have to admit, I was angry, and I wanted to, to write to Ken Burns and say, are you nuts? You know, you 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 got to have, I mean, Joe Ellis, come on, what's wrong with you? And then the truth is, the second night you were a big deal in it, Joe, and that vindicated that it. that I was in, I, I, I was interviewed for like seven hours by Burns a year and a half ago, two years ago, for a film that won't come out until 2026 on the American Revolution. And he must have taken stuff from that to put it into the Franklin film. And that's fine. Okay. You know, uh, but I, people said, oh, we saw you in the Franklin film. I said, God, I didn't even know that I was in it. And, um, uh, and I think that, that, um, it reminds me of the fact that Clay was also the star of the Jefferson film that, that uh, Burns did back in about 1999, 98. And I was one of the, I was the chief historical consultant for that. I was in it too. Not as, not nearly as much as Clay, but we, we went out and interviewed, we meaning the Burns factory, which, uh, 26 historians whom I identified as worthy people who knew a lot about Jefferson. And the problem there is that you can be really knowledgeable, but you can't present yourself on, on the screen with a level of dramatic coherence necessary. Clay has that. They didn't have that. They all ended up on the cutting room floor. And all of them hated me because they thought that I somehow led them down the primrose path. But that Clay is the star of the Jeff of the Jefferson thing, and he's probably going to be the star of this thing on Theodore Roosevelt in large part because he's experienced at communicating with a larger public in a way that is both cogent but also sophisticated. And there's not that many people who can do that. You're very kind to say those things, of course, Joe. But you know, I. I, and I, David and our listeners all know this, but we were hecklers in the Ken Burns studio back during the Jefferson thing. We were, right. we were trading. We bonded. We bonded as hecklers. We were trading irreverent remarks. Burns remark. was going to kick us out. We yeah. were making funny fun of several of the historians. And finally, Burns turned around and said, I'm going to send you two out of the room if you do not desist. <laughs> and he was not happy with us. So 
But we bonded over that. And then there was a long period where you were so busy and I was so busy. But here we are now. And it's one of the great joys of my life that you and David and I are such good friends and that we can talk about these things. And But I really was upset on night one of Franklin because I thought, if there's no Joe Ellis in it, how serious can this film be? But then on night two, he really started to quote you and you were terrific. And I know this sounds like a mutual admiration society now. I don't mean it to be, but you know, this is Burns is the is the genius of this genre, the best in the in the world, and he's done more for public history than any other single individual. I know. Within the academy, sometimes of the academic world, uh where, uh, as far as I can tell, anybody who's bet on envy and jealousy has never lost. Um, uh, uh, they want to not give Burns the credit he deserves because uh, he's he's so successful. But he is the person more than anybody else that in our lifetime that has brought some serious American history to a larger public in a way that is, that is uh, as I say, serious and intellectually sophisticated. As have both of you gentlemen. And here I am steering us away from that by bringing up these documentaries. But I, I felt I wanted to, because I, I did want to congratulate the both of you on your contributions to the Benjamin Franklin documentary. And, and I know that's still, you can find that online. And I'm really looking forward to this History Channel documentary on Theodore Roosevelt. But... You are both here to talk about the Enlightenment. And I go back to the beginning of the program when I uh, talked about founding brothers and and re-listening to it, rereading it the other day. And this this great story, Joe, that you present about the two different factions and how they came to consensus. And I, to me, that's pretty enlightened. I, do you want to talk about that? Well, the briefly, that if you want to succinctly point to what you're referring to as the way they come together, it's something that both Clay and I recognize as the capstone of the revolutionary era, and that is the correspondence between Adams and Jefferson. Um, you know, Adams said, you and I ought not to die before we've explained ourselves to each other because they were both prominent revolutionaries. Their careers, their lives were shaped by the revolution. And therefore they had credentials that were, um, you know, that were unimpeachable, but they didn't agree about what the American revolution really meant. Um, and so what I'm you know, famous for saying is the American revolution doesn't have a meaning except the argument about what it meant. Um, and uh, in, in specific terms, I, I mean, we can now say without question, the American Revolution meant that we had to have slavery, and it's Lincoln who eventually acts on that. But with regard to whether government is us or government is them, with regard to a lot of the issues that currently afflict us in terms of uh, the rights of individuals versus um, our larger commitment to collective um, those are things which are not resolved, but are put on the table for persistent argument. So that in that sense, the American dialogue it, it just begins with Adams, the revolution, and, and is most clearly embodied in the Adams-Jefferson correspondence, is what we need to continue to have. And what's difficult in the present moment, and being out there in Zoomy world for the most recent book I've written makes me more aware of this, is it's very difficult difficult, excuse me, to argue now. It is no longer 
as easy to engage in a serious argument um, about important facts of American history. Um, and we need to recover the capacity to argue. And in that sense, we can recover the dialogue that I was referring to. Yes, I agree with you, Joe. But I think that I want to go back to what you said about slavery for a moment, because at the Constitutional Convention, you know, the conventional wisdom, it was big state v. little state, and there certainly was that, which led to the Great Compromise of, of mid-June 1787. But Madison was better at seeing in this area than the others, and he said, no, actually the, the conflict is going to be between slave and non-slave. And so there were two views among the founding fathers. One view was that slavery was incompatible with the very thing we were trying to do. And the question was, do we eliminate it gradually or in one great moment? But how will this end? As you said, Jefferson had a mystic view of how it would end. But the question was, how do we get out from under this thing? But the other view, which was equally important and certainly louder, was that slavery is not part of this equation, that slavery should not be, be even talked about in this way, that slavery is a thing. It's an economic thing. It's a it's a race thing, but it's not. It it doesn't it doesn't uh, reflect on the value of the American Revolution. And that point of view was especially put forward by the delegates from South Carolina at the Constitutional Convention. And their view was: we can have a republic with all the glories of a republic, but if you bring up race and slavery, we're out. Mm -hmm. I um, uh, I think that I don't disagree with what you're saying. I would. I would amplify it by saying that to me, I think both Jefferson and Adams, who were not present in Philadelphia for the convention, they were abroad, would agree that slavery is incompatible with the values of the revolution. So that the people that are arguing the other side of that are, are a distinct minority within the founding generation. Uh, and they eventually lose the argument, not in court, but on the battlefields of the Civil War. And I think that the issue at stake that, that, that Jefferson, and we can probably do a whole new program on this, is that the problem is not whether we should end slavery. We should. But the problem is what happens to the freed slaves? We have a distinct problem there. European powers didn't have this problem. You could end slavery in London and not worry because all the slaves were over in Jamaica. Um, or in the Caribbean. Here, there's 500,000 African-Americans on the, on the grounds. 90% of them live south of the Chesapeake. And that what do you do with freed slaves? What do you do with a black population? That's the argument that undermines the effort at emancipation. And this is where Jefferson leaps off the ship. And he says, until we can reach a conclusion and the conclusion for him is that we have to send them out of the country. And the reason that we have to send them out of the country is twofold for Jefferson. One is he doesn't believe a mixed race society is viable, a, a really ironic position for him, given Sally. But the second reason, and the reason that's most potent, and the reason that's still with us, and the reason that, that, that we have the problems we are having, is that he believed that blacks would never be accepted as equals in the American society, that there was never such a thing on the earth as a truly biracial society. And we are the one place on earth where we have a shot at achieving that. When people say, 
I want to make America great again. One of the things they mean is before the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and before we had a guy looking like Barack Obama as president of the United States. So Jefferson was an emancipationist, but he was also an apartheidist. And that's the part that is so uh, disenchanting in in one's view of Jefferson. He's more than an apartheidist. He, he believes, as you said, that once freed, African-Americans must be repatriated somewhere else, either back in Africa or in the Caribbean or in a homeland in the American right. West. And in so, that sense, see, Jefferson is the central figure in the hard dialogue about American race and slavery because he's, he stands astride both sides of the argument. He wrote the words that are the basis for emancipation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, period. And on the other side of that, he doesn't really believe that blacks fit into that easily. I mean, here's a question that I don't have an answer to. Has there ever been a fully biracial society in the entire history of the world? I don't think so. I think we're closer to it than any nation has ever achieved. And yet, look at us now. We still, you know, several southern states are attempting to disinfect. It's like Jim Crow without the lynching. This is the, the American dilemma. Jefferson stands astride like nobody else. Which America. is one reason he's central to the American project, because he is the high-mindedest of all of them and the one who dreamed most of this kind of Arcadian American exceptionalism. At the same time, there is at the core of Jefferson a very um, dark racist, and right. this he bestrides American attitudes. At the same time as he's a racist, he's living a 38-year relationship with an African-American woman and producing four children who got lived to maturity as a result. So it's like, wow. I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you explain that? But I think that um, instead of condemning him, try to understand. If, if you understand Jefferson, you understand why it's going to be so hard to do what we want to do. Gentlemen, we're coming up to the end of this conversation. In the several minutes that we have left, the subject this week was to be the Enlightenment. Uh, <laughs> and I, I would. I'm sorry. No, not, not at all, sir. Um, I would like to give both of you the opportunity to to summarize. Well, I think that one reason why the, the why the 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 academics of the left, the postmodernists and the and the uh, the academicians on the left have been so hard on the Enlightenment is because of this issue, or because of issues like this. That here's Jefferson saying all men are created equal, and having this incredibly beautiful dream that we all are in some sense still in love with. And yet at the heart, he's this guy who was a racist and a slaveholder. And he's also at the same time writing a letter to Alexander von Humboldt in 1813 saying the behavior of Native Americans during the War of 1812 is such that we may have to exterminate them or at least drive them beyond the mountains. And so when you see that the, that beneath all the great golden rhetoric are people that kind of react as people always have in the history of the world, it's a disillusionment. And I think the real question, Joe is what do we do with that disillusionment? Do we give up or do we reinvigorate ourselves and recommit ourselves to those ideals? Or do we have sort of Adam's view that, yeah, we should pitch it high, but we should never be under any illusion that humans are up to it? I don't have an answer. I think the Enlightenment is gone and dead. But that the assumptions that it left us with at some fundamental level must be kept alive. And Jefferson is as good a voice on what those assumptions are as any American that I know. We have to adjust our expectations. We have to recognize that 
on the racial front, what we're trying to do and what we're trying to create is unprecedented. And we have to know that what Martin Luther King called uh, what is the arc of the moral universe, the arc of the moral universe does tend towards justice. But in American history, it's not a clear upward arc. And there is a backlash. And that the first backlash is right after emancipation is proposed. And that's what kills emancipation and what gives the basis for the southern states to hold out. We're now in a, the fourth backlash. And after the election of the previous president, uh, make America great again means turn back the clock, give up on this uh, by, by racial ideal. But at the same time as that's happening, think of when the American team entered the Olympics at Tokyo, marched in, it was a vacant auditorium. It was the only biracial team in the world. The reason we won, take a look at ads on television, take a look at the Oscars. The very reason why the backlash happens is because things are improving. And that improv improv improving upsets us, a minority of people. So that a positive way to see it is we, we experience these backlashes precisely because we are moving forward. Um, and the, on the end, you got to believe that you got to be a Jeffersonian to believe that that's the dominant pattern. Sadly, gentlemen, we need to bring this conversation to a close. As always, Clay, the last word is yours. Yeah, I heard I heard the great Joe Ellis say in the end, you've got to be a Jeffersonian. I think that's a wrap. You've been listening to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and we'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. <laughs>